morning. We are continuing our True North series. David uh, McKinney, my buddy, thank you for reading the, the, the text. My, my good friend who is also a Braves fan, and I'll get the obligatory sports references out of the way right now, just to say the Braves are really good. The Vols are not. <laughs> no, don't clap. Well, it's hard. It's hard. And I, I just have a moment of confession. This is not in my notes, but I have this, this, uh, this my boy that I love down here, my oldest, Howell, who uh, kind of looks just like me. And we sit and um, watch Tennessee games. And I'm married into an Alabama family. And it's, don't tell my family, but it's kind of gross. And, <laughs> but he is the biggest Alabama fan. And he sits there with me and watches UT games and roots for whoever they're playing against. And I just don't know how this happened. <laughs> That I have this son who I've, you know, waited my whole life to have a, a son to watch sports with. And then he's just not, I don't know what happened, but it's, <laughs> I'm okay. I'm okay. Praying for the balls. True North, finding our way in a world that is lost in many ways. It's, it's way. All summer we, we went through Ephesians and it was, it was, um, it was fun for me to go through Ephesians with you and kind of hinged on what Paul was, I believe, arguing in Ephesians amongst many things, but this, this idea that because we have been reconciled with God through Jesus, that we can, in fact, be reconciled with one another. And that, that's the overriding theme of this series as well, as we focus our compass on that which is our true north, Jesus. And it calibrates us as the, as the children of God, as David just read, we're able to get along with one another and reach out and, and be reconciled to others because of the reconciliation we have with God. So this week and next week, we're looking at um, the issue of identity. And so uh, this week, we're really looking more in the mirror together at uh, a portion of what we just read and the, the idea that Jesus embodies grace and truth we're going to carry that out to what my friend Chris Brooks uh, has done in Kairos and in recent history, uh, taking those words grace and truth and likening them to um, kindness and conviction. And we're going to look in the mirror and consider where we are on this kindness and conviction scale. And then we'll transition next week, so just be advised, it, it, it won't be an explicit sermon by any means, but we will deal specifically with gender and sexual identity next week, um, uh, coming off of what we talk about this morning. So that's where we are. Verse 14 that, that David just read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have observed his glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full, 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 full of grace and truth. When Pastor Kevin DeYoung was being interviewed to be the pastor of University Reformed Church, he had to indicate where he was on a variety of issues, where he was on the spectrum on a variety of issues. And one of these questions was where he was on the spectrum of grace versus truth. And his response um, to this um, was, this is a bad question. A little dangerous to do in a job interview, but he just kind of turned it around and said, this is a bad question. Because as he saw it, seeing as how Jesus came from the Father, 
full of grace and truth, verse 14 reminds us, Kevin believes we should be 100% in both directions. And I agree. So we have grace people and truth people in the world, and maybe we shouldn't, but we do. Upbringing, personality, or myriad other things cause most of us to lean in either one of those two directions. So let's start with truth people. Truth people, really easy to admire for their convictions and their principles. Truth people believe strongly in right and wrong, and truth people do a good job of setting and maintaining standards. When I was a student minister, such a fun job. I loved being a youth minister. I would remind the students every Wednesday night, even though I didn't do this in my own life, I would hold them accountable to it to make the right, chance, make the right decision every chance they get, to do the right thing every chance they get, to believe the right thing, to live by it, to talk the talk, to walk the walk, to not fall prey to hollow and deceptive theology, to not let idols, which is anything we put before us or in place of the Lord our God, have reign in our lives. I want my own children, just like I wanted our students at the time, just like I want our students here, just like I want all of us to be truth people. But without grace, truth people can easily come across as belligerent. Grace people. Grace people are pleasant to be around. Grace people don't ruffle too many feathers. Grace people accept people for who they are. I think I tend to be a grace person. I can fall into both categories, but I want to keep the peace. I'm a nine on the Enneagram scale. But keeping the peace is distinctly different than making peace. Philip Schaff, the distinguished 19th century church historian, identifies a certain saying that I'll tell you in a second that I think you'll recognize as the watchword of Christian peacemakers. And this saying is often attributed, I thought it was, I was guilty, I thought it was Augustine who came up with this, but apparently not. It comes from an otherwise undistinguished German Lutheran theologian of the early 17th century, Rupertus Meldinius. Perhaps you recognize in essentials unity non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And saying such as this one come out of the earnest desire the church has in our best moments to live out grace and truth, as verse 14 suggests Jesus did, and in turn we should. Jesus, who was full of grace and truth. So for the next few moments, let's kind of dig our feet in. I guess I'm the only one standing, so you just kind of get comfortable. And let's look at this spectrum um, and consider where we are as it relates to grace and truth, or as we're going to say, kindness and conviction. Chris Brooks uh, provided these, these slides, and so you see he preached this in Kairos a few weeks ago, I told you. So you see the high conviction, low conviction, low kindness, and high kindness. And we're going to go around this clockwise. And we're going to begin 
with high kindness and low conviction. The word for those of us that might be in this quadrant will be enable. Perhaps the verse that resonates with those of us who are high kindness and low conviction is judge not, lest you be judged. God will, you know, exercise the wrath. We don't have to do it. Popular saying for those of us in this quadrant could be in love, there is no wrong. Those of us in this quadrant, our whole goal in life is like the grace people, to not ruffle feathers. Now, I would argue that those of us in this quadrant likely do not have many real relationships. Relationships that are real in the sense that hard things can be spoken between the parties in these relationships. Where love will withstand disagreement. Where love will withstand hard truth being spoken. High kindness, low conviction people tend to shy away from saying the difficult things. That if we're honest, we know we need to hear at times. So if you're in this quadrant, there's a good chance that you're not that for someone. Or you are not in many or any relationships where you have that kind of person for you. Next, low kindness, low conviction. The word for this one will be endure. Perhaps Psalm 13 resonates with you. How long, O Lord? How long? Those of us in this quadrant, we tend to just hang on. And those of us who are just hanging on in life, we we have a hard time or we, we just simply don't understand that we are here for a purpose. That we are here to continue the life and work of Jesus, that we are here as a part of God's kingdom to help, I like to say, build for God's kingdom as it is unfolding amongst us. The mantra of those of us in this group might be if we don't talk about it, then it's not a problem. People in this group tend to just tolerate one another, or others. We'll get back to that word, tolerate. Next, high conviction, low kindness. Now, this quadrant, there are many people here that are in our churches every week, and that makes me sad. I've been one of them in the past, I confess. Uh, Scripture references that excite or resonate with those of us in this quadrant are any that have anything to do with God's wrath or God's punishment being poured out on any one person or group or thing that is an abomination. You often may have heard hate the sin and love the sinner. Folks in this group resonate more with hate the sin and punish the sinner, unfortunately. And what ends up happening is, is folks in this group will either pull away from society. We mentioned the Essenes last week who, who actually lived away from society and removed themselves from it altogether. 
That may be your response. Or you dig in to society, to culture, and you hold people accountable. And when I say you hold people accountable, I mean you hold all the people accountable. And in doing so, far too often failing to see the plank in our own eye or just disregarding that plank altogether. We were at the ice cream shop um, Friday night. And um, <laughs> by the way, I'm at the stage in life, it's a little confession time here, not in my notes, um, where I don't buy ice cream for myself anymore because, and I thought right, my children were going to be in children's church today, but they didn't go for some reason. So <laughs> here they are, but I'm going to tell this anyway. I don't buy ice cream for myself typically anymore because they, it's just easier to get them the size that they want, even though that's always twice as much as that they can eat all together. And so I just eat the rest of their ice cream. And I discovered Friday night, I thought that sprinkles were just something that kids ate and they didn't have any taste. No, they're quite good. Did you know that? (laughs) Sprinkles are awesome. We were at the ice cream shop and we were leaving and we were we were parked fine, um, but there was a, a gentleman who pulled into a space that was not a space. I didn't even realize he was there, um, but he was trying. I didn't know. I didn't even know he was in his car. I didn't even recognize the car until it hit me as he was trying to leave. And I, I'm I'm fine, but it did kind of make my knee buckle. And I I was bigger deal was that Leslie was putting Hattie in the car at the same time. He, he just didn't see us. I mean, it was, it was for sure an honest, honest mistake, but honest mistakes can have, you know, severe consequences. And so I went into dad mode and high conviction, low kindness mode. And I banged on his window and really wanted to get his attention. And I, he was not really wanting to talk to me, obviously. And I don't know if he'd really yet realized what he was doing. He was coming out of the liquor store. So I, after he pulled his window down. I, in my infinite wisdom, asked him if he was drunk. That was the first thing I said to him. And his response was not yet. And so, <laughs> which kind of gave an indication of what his night was going to look like, which really shows that maybe he needed some kindness there. And I was not in a state to, to give him that kindness. I ended up writing his license plate down. And I, I, I mean, guys, girls, what I wanted to do was jump into his car so he couldn't leave until I said all that I wanted to say to him. I'm glad I didn't. I don't know how that would have ended, but I also don't want him backing into my daughter, my wife, my knee. The problem with this bull in a china shop approach is that it doesn't work. I mean, even though the Lord saved me from going way over the line with him, um, I, I, I probably did enough to ruin any chance of a relationship with him if I ever come back across with him. Because this approach either produces the results you want for a very short time and then loses it, or it just pushes the person away completely, rendering that relationship impossible. You know, when I would begin practice at the beginning, I used to be a basketball coach. Loved coaching basketball. And I would begin practice at the beginning of the basketball season. There was always a period of time where I needed to try and figure out each of the players on my team. Because people respond differently to different types of coaching. And I have never coached a kid that wanted to constantly be told everything he was doing wrong. Right from the start. 
with each player, it was wise. I had to build rapport. There, there had to be a relationship of trust and a relationship of care before I could coach any individual player hard, before I could come at them with high conviction. I love... I got to sit with Donald Miller a couple weeks ago. I may have told you all that, and he helped us with our preaching. It's really cool. One of the things I remember him writing in one of his books years ago that has stuck with me is that people are not going to respond to your leadership or listen to you if they don't think you like them. And I think that's true. Now, we definitely need to hold one another accountable. But hear me. Relationship. Good relationship, it has to precede accountability, in my experience. Now think about that. Relationship has to precede accountability. Sharon Fairchild was here a few weeks ago during the offertory time, I think July 28th. And I have been several times to Brazil when she and Ray were missionaries there with Betty Wiseman, who many of y'all met um, back in January, first week I was here with you. Um, Really, on those trips, they were sport evangelism trips, and they really formed me. They were good trips. We took the game of basketball into foreign countries, and and we used basketball clinics and basketball games to share the gospel. And it was I, I was, I'm proud of the work we did. It was very healthy. But I remember this is kind of when I began cutting my teeth as an evangelist. And I, I recall us getting into these rooms with a lot of children and sharing the gospel with them, which I'm all for. Absolutely. But I also remember taking that time, which was often five or ten minutes. It wasn't long after sharing my story and sharing the gospel. And then I would ask for a response from the children. And we would have them repeat the sinner's prayer with us. And I still, I don't think it's wrong. I don't wish we hadn't done it. But what I've realized through the years is that Sharon and Ray, who were missionaries there, who were part of the communities in which we were serving, who knew other missionaries and local indigenous pastors from those communities, the the real work was to follow up on those times and to build relationships with the children and their families and to invite them to be a part of the church so that discipleship process could continue. Yes, it was cool to hear the gospel from a group of American basketball players, and that approach worked, and I'm proud of that. But without that follow-up and that discipleship and that church and that relationship, I believe it would have been fruitless. It may have produced a response initially that never was cultivated, that never was watered, that never was allowed to grow because relationship has to precede accountability. And this moves us to our final quadrant, which by default we are saying this is where we need to be. And I believe many of us are. A lot of the time, this, this high conviction High kindness quadrant. The word for this would be engage. Maybe you recognize that from our mission statement where we engage each whole person with the whole gospel of Jesus Christ anytime, anywhere, with anybody. Kindness is the first building block 
for relationship. Kindness has to precede relationship. Relationship has to precede accountability, but kindness has to precede relationship. I read a story about Jimmy. Jimmy grew up near the railroad tracks years ago. And he remembers a number of times that he would wake up from sleep in the morning and wander into the kitchen for breakfast. And there would be some, let me get this right, exactly how he said it, strange, ugly looking, poorly dressed man at the table, just eating all his food. Jimmy was scared of him. And when this man would leave, he would ask his mother, mother, who, who was that? And she would say, well, his name's Henry. And he was hungry. Well, mama, where, where did he come from? Well, he came from down the railroad tracks. You see, people called them hobos then. They walked the tracks begging, maybe even stealing, getting what they could to stay alive. And they'd stop by Jimmy's house and there sitting in the kitchen with his family eating their food. They were far from wealthy. But as his mama said, Henry was hungry. After the, different story, after the declaration of war by President Bush and what we called the Gulf War, some Christians gathered for prayer. There were songs, scripture, more prayer, more songs, more scripture, more prayer. This, this gathering went a while and it was good. And there was a young man there, 17 or 18 years old, a, a freshman at the local university. And in the course of the sentence prayers where the, the floor was opened up for sentence prayers, he asked that God be with the women and children in Iraq who would be hurt and killed in the war. And when it was over, a man in his mid-50s came over to that young man and said, Are you, son, on Saddam's side? No, sir. Well, son, you're praying for the wrong people. And that's just not true. You know, building on what we discussed last week, let's remember we're not Americans first. Those of us who are in God's family, we're, we belong to another kingdom. And who is the king of that kingdom? Well, it's Jesus. And the kingdom is where things are as the king would have them. Relationship precedes accountability. Kindness precedes relationship. And knowing who we are in Christ, being firm about and confident in our identity as children of God must precede our kindness. In fact, I have learned in my life that kindness is rather impossible to sustain without it. Without knowing who we are in Christ. It must inform and define our kindness. That we are to love everyone. Even our enemies. Even those whose lifestyles, and we will get into this more next week, we may not agree with. Our text reminded us that the word became flesh and the word dwelt among us. Jesus was crucified on our behalf. The, the crucified Lord, Jesus, is the exact 
representation of God's person dwelling among us. God shows us how much God loves us, not by supporting rejectors or excluders, but by standing with those who are rejected and excluded. Greater love has no man than this, than he who would lay his life down for his friends. That is what Jesus embodied and did, and we are called to the same. God has been revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore, Jesus's interaction with and treatment of the marginalized and stigmatized must be recognized and regarded. There are so many examples in the Gospels of Jesus, including sinners and outcasts in the way he went about his life and ministry, loving them. We have exactly zero examples of Jesus refusing to love them. In this light, it should become difficult for us to cast the first stone at anyone who is the other. Now, I'm not advocating that people can live however they want, especially those of us in the church. On one hand, why would we ever expect someone who does not know and follow Jesus to act like they know and follow Jesus? That makes no sense. But on the other hand, we absolutely should expect one another to do that. When we have said that we intend to, even though we are not yet perfect and God is still making all things new, all things the way that they will ultimately be one day, we are to help one another along and help that be more the case today. But only those of us who are already in God's kingdom, heirs to all of God's promises. What I am advocating for is that we let our conviction be high, but let it be immersed in kindness and vice versa. That we are quick to listen, that we are slow to condemn. That our accountability be set within relationship. Back to the word tolerance, because I don't tend to like this word. I remember a sermon by Mike Glenn a few years ago where he went on a rant about tolerance and it was really well done. And he was talking about tolerance being the best we could do sometimes and how pathetic that is. Case in point, like what if I came home and grabbed Leslie Ann's hand and said, hey, sweetheart, I tolerate you. I don't know. I think she would, I don't, I don't know what she would do. She would not appreciate that. Tim Keller says tolerance is not about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. I love that. Tolerance is not about not having beliefs. It's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. And I'll go back to what I've been saying for a few weeks now because I think it helps, it helps me through this because I don't always live that way. I don't use channel, funnel my tolerance to help me treat those who don't agree with me better and I need to more and more and I need to help that along by remembering that in the end, everything is going to be okay. Like God is making All things new, and we trust that, and we believe that. And when we look around and we realize things are not yet okay, we're reminded that it's not the end. So in the meantime, we live out our mission statement. We engage each whole person with the entire 
whole gospel of Jesus Christ anytime, anywhere, with anybody. So as we leave this week, I ask that you come back next week and and let's dive in more specifically after we consider for the next six days where we are on this spectrum. High kindness, low conviction, too often. But I waffle through all the quadrants. Oh, Lord, I want to spend more time. High conviction, high kindness. And I need you to help me do so. So I want you to consider this week where you are on this spectrum. I get excited about what the Spirit can and will do through us, the church at Harpeth Heights, when we truly are operating in a high kindness high conviction state where our conviction is in Jesus, the word who dwells among us. And when our kindness mirrors the very kindness that Jesus displayed and continues to desire to display through the Holy Spirit acting in us. Let's pray. Thank you.